Antarctica is the highest, driest, coldest, windiest, and emptiest continent on Earth. Every year, more than 400 scientists venture there to study everything from astronomy to microbiology. But they can't do it alone. It takes a small army of support staff to keep them all safe and fully operational. The Antarctic Sun podcast is a behind-the-scenes look at what it takes for the National Science Foundation to maintain the research stations and vessels that support ongoing science in the harshest continent at the bottom of the planet. This episode, Fuels at the South Pole. I'm standing in a large, cavernous room, about 30 feet below the surface of the South Pole. It's minus 52 degrees Fahrenheit in here, and all the walls are covered in ice crystals. Stretching out before me are dozens of large white tanks, some full, some empty. They look like giant bleached batteries, and in a way, that's what they are. They're fuel tanks, which store the petroleum that powers the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station. I'm with Chad Goodale, the fuel supervisor for the U.S. Antarctic program. He climbs a ladder next to one of the tanks and removes the cover off a small pipe sticking out of the top. So what is this you're doing? So right now I'm going to dip the tank or gauge it uh, to see how much fuel is currently in the tank. And then I'll get a dip at the end of the transfer and we will subtract the difference and that'll give us our total. Fuel is the most important resource at the South Pole, and keeping track of how much there is is critical. Chad drops a weighted tape measure down the thin pipe. Get anything out of that? So right now we have eight, zero feet, eight and three-eighths inches in this tank. Pretty empty? Pretty empty, yep. At the far end of the long room is what kind of looks like a trailer home, with pipes and hoses coming out of it and pumps constantly running. Uh, so what we're looking at, uh, very overwhelming, lots of gadgets, lots of uh, tanks, valves, check valves, all that kind of stuff, plumbing everywhere. Uh, so it's a pretty tight space. Uh, this would be our fuel distribution center. So this is where we can uh, move fuel in uh, to tanks, and this is where we can also pull fuel from the tanks and uh, distribute it to the various places it needs to go. Fuel operators, or fuelies as they're called, direct fuel all over station. Andrea Dixon, the assistant area manager for South Pole, gives us an idea of just how many places it goes and how critical it is to station operations. Um, so we use fuel for um, powering our power plant. Um, that's where the bulk of our fuel goes. Um, we also um, fuel heavy equipment. We do lots of snow moving and grooming and hauling cargo and things like that. So um, we run a lot of equipment, which uses a lot of fuel. Um, we have a lot of outbuildings that we have to heat with furnaces um, and day tanks for fuel. So that takes a lot of fuel. Uh, we also give fuel to airplanes. Um, small aircraft, fixed-wing aircraft that come through. Um, and then the bulk of our power generation um, goes to the main station, which is quite large, um, and also to things like the South Pole Telescope um, and Ice Cube, which use a lot of power. Every building uses electricity, and the station's power plant runs 24-7 to generate it. So they have uh, three, well, essentially they have three uh, Caterpillar engines, this is Colin Whitmore, the facilities engineer for the South Pole Station. Uh, they're V12s, uh, so kind of like a car engine, but, you know, obviously bigger. Um, and then those are <clears throat> connected to um, uh, basically an electric generator, um, like a motor, and, uh, and that's what produces the electricity that we use uh, here at the facility. And like the motors in some trucks, these large engines are burning what's essentially a kind of diesel fuel. And so what we're using, it's a unique blend 
very appropriate for our environment. So it's A and eight. It, it's an Antarctic uh, grade jet fuel. So it's kerosene based fuel. It's a versatile fuel and one that's specially formulated for the harsh cold climate at South Pole. The fuel that we use, anything that requires diesel, will accept A and eight. It's highly refined. It's very, very clean fuel. Um, so not many particulates in it. Uh, so it, it works well in power plant, equipment, you name it. Uh, so the unique thing about this uh, fuel, the A&8, is it has a very low gelling point. It might seem obvious, but it's worth reiterating that the South Pole is cold. Temperatures there during winter can drop as low as minus 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Even in the peak of summer, temperatures are rarely above zero. In the fuel arch where the fuel is stored, it's a constant minus 52 degrees throughout the year. Being in the Antarctic, our temperatures are so cold, uh, the fuels that you typically run, you know, in warmer climates, um, they would, uh, they would uh, gum up or gel up if they were here. So uh, JP5, which is the other fuel that we use, we typically use that for marine use only. That gels around minus 40, minus 46. Uh, this gels at minus 76. So being in a cold, harsh environment such as South Pole, uh, it allows the fuel to stay liquid without clouding, without clogging filters, and it's, it's easy for us to use and maintain. With multiple buildings and science projects to power, the station uses a fair bit of fuel. The power plant itself, which consumes the lion's share, can go through roughly 1,000 gallons a day, with consumption peaking during summer as there are more people on station. Plus, there are all the vehicles and equipment that also rely on fuel, adding to the total annual need. Um, so we average, in the last five years, we've been averaging about 450,000 gallons. Um, so we typically, in the winter, it's pretty stable. Our fuel use is pretty stable. It's about 300,000 gallons. Um, the summer is where you can see a lot of variance, um, which just depends on what we're doing. If we're doing a lot of construction projects, or if our population is really high in the summer, then our fuel use will go up. Um, but generally, it's about 450,000 a year in total. Getting all of that fuel to the bottom of the world is no simple feat. In our previous podcast, we met people on the South Pole Traverse, or SPOT, who drive a fleet of tractors lugging fuel more than 1,000 miles to the South Pole. SPOT comes to pole three times over the course of a summer. Each, um, each time they come, they give us about 100,000 gallons of fuel, and they carry it in big bladders that they haul behind tractors, and they drive it here from McMurdo Station, which takes about three weeks to get here. Um, and then we offload that into our fuel arch. The rest of it is made up with the 76 flights that come, come through here. So the LC-130s, uh, when they bring uh, cargo pa passengers, uh, they also offload fuel. And uh, we put that down into the arch and use that um, as well to support the station. These aren't special tanker airplanes. That fuel is actually pulled straight from the tanks of the skied LC-130 cargo planes that fly cargo and people to the South Pole. Yeah, so this is a, a military aircraft, so we do an engine running offload. Uh, so we have skied C-130s, LC-130s uh, that fly in. And uh, I will say it is, it is a, a huge thrill to be able to walk under the air aircraft while the engines are running uh, and, and offload the fuel. Offloading fuel from spot may be a little bit less thrilling, but just as critical to get every little bit. So we have the bladders, so it comes on a sled with uh, eight bladders, four in the front, four in the back. Uh, put it on a small incline so we can get every single drop out of it. Uh, drop it down here into the arch, and then uh, it goes into the, the storage tank. So uh, it takes a lot of support from the uh, South Pole Traverse crew uh, to get everything 
uh, squeezed out. So they actually use brooms to push all of the fuel down to the to the lowest point and suck it out. And then uh, we have two fuels operators uh, that help support one operating the pump on the on the deck and then one operator uh, monitoring the tanks uh, down in the fuel arch. The program started transporting fuel using the South Pole Traverse in 2005, and since then it's been a huge change for the station. It may not seem like it at first, but driving a thousand gallons of fuel halfway across the continent is actually pretty efficient. Because we get it in bulk, we can reduce the number of flights. If we didn't have spot bringing us fuel, then we would need about a hundred more flights to get our fuel here. Um, which is quite a bit. The, it's much more expensive to bring it by plane than it is to bring it by um, the Overland Traverse. So that's changed things a lot. It means we have a lot fewer flights. Um, our day-to-day operation, it gets very intensive when we have flights, so things are a little um, quieter in terms of our day-to-day station operations because we don't have so many flights anymore. Because it's so remote, it's absolutely critical that the station is fully gassed up before the beginning of winter. South Pole is so cold that planes can only fly there for about three months of the year, during the Austral summer. After about mid-February, no one and no supplies can get in and out for nine months until about mid-November. Because supplies are finite, the station's fuel systems are designed to make sure that nothing is lost in any transfer. Plus, the fuel systems and operators also have to be good environmental stewards. The whole continent is protected by the Antarctic Conservation Act the U.S. law that established strict environmental protections for Antarctica. Uh, We operate under that, and so uh, any drop of fuel that hits the ground, uh, we clean it up, we report it. Uh, it, It's rare that 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 happens. Uh, We take measures, um, like I talked about, everything likes to leak in the cold. Uh, So we always take preventative measures. Anytime we have a connection, uh, we always put a drip pan underneath of it, so that way if it is going to drip, it's going to drip into the pan and not onto the ground. in the rare case when it does, uh, accidents do happen. Uh, we follow the, the, the proper protocols and procedures uh, to report it. And certainly we, we try through our training and uh, our SOPs, our standard operating procedures, uh, we're heavily focused on uh, procedures and making sure that we're doing things uh, appropriately uh, to avoid those big, uh, the, those big spills. Recycling is big here, including even the heat produced by those V12 engines. Uh, one of the things that is really nice about engines is that, of course, you know, typically a car engine has a radiator. You know, we run through the radiator, and that's how we get heat in the wintertime and so on and so forth. Well, uh, here at the facility, we actually capture that heat, uh, and we uh, put that into a glycol system, and then we uh, route glycol throughout um, all of all of the elevated uh, station, and then much of the um, the garage arches, the LO arches, and things like that, which are attached to, you know, this building. The outer buildings don't have it, but uh, but we we consume virtually every ounce of waste heat from those engines as we can. And as a result of that, uh, we have very little electric heat or some kind of supplemental heat. It's kind of incredible. At the South Pole, one of the coldest places on the planet. The enormous station here is almost entirely heated with recycled heat from the power generators. Well, so we do it two ways. One is that uh, just like you have, like I said, your car, you've got you know a jacketed water system, in our case, glycol. Um, but you have a jacketed water system around your engine, and we that heat comes off, and then we use a heat exchanger that exchanges it with the heat that's generated from the engine, goes into the radiator, the radiator then uh, puts it heat into another fluid, again, glycol, but keeps them separate. 
uh, and then we route that glycol out throughout the building and goes through various radiators and, and so on and so forth. It's a really efficient system, too. Um, I mean, even our dryers, our clothes dryers, use glycol as, yeah, they're not electric. They're, they actually use glycol and a heat exchanger to dry our clothes. Um, then uh, on top of that, <clears throat> so that's just on the water jacketing system. We also have uh, in the flue gas, you know, we have exhaust pipes, obviously, and, and that exhaust is hot. Uh, and so in those exhaust pipes, we have a heat exchanger as well that captures as much of that heat as we can. Uh, and then it'll also go into the waste heat um, system, basically. And we call it waste heat because it's what the generator produces, and we capture that waste heat and use it for our purposes. Of course, there are environmental downsides to relying on fossil fuels. And unfortunately, the harsh climatic conditions here exacerbate some of the shortcomings of renewable and sustainable systems. So there's, I mean, we do run some uh, solar panels out here. Um, obviously, the risks of the solar panels is, number one, you got to keep them clean. Uh, we do have a little bit of snowfall here, and it happens, obviously. Uh, but the other problem with solar panels is that, you know, we have six months of complete darkness. So obviously, they wouldn't work real well. So uh, what we tend to use the solar panels for is some of the peaking kind of stuff, you know, and, um, um, and in some of it's just testing as well. I mean, it's if, with the extreme cold temperatures, we do run risks of having uh, issues with solar panels. We also have some um, some wind turbines here. They're very small scale, um, and uh, they will produce you know they will produce some electricity, but uh, they're, they're not significant. Um, the problems with wind turbines. I mean, we do have fairly consistent winds out here, and wind turbines would typically do well in that type of situation. Um, but with the extreme cold. Um, and, you know, we get some actually some very strong winds that, um, that, you know, chances are they probably wouldn't perform as well as you might expect. In particular, the cold itself is a huge obstacle for electrical storage. In frigid temperatures, batteries can become what's called cold-soaked, and their charge completely drains out of them very quickly. Batteries are actually, that's a big problem here. Um, you know, with the extreme colds, I mean, you know, even the, the snowmobiles that we run around, I mean, a lot of times it's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, the battery doesn't work. You can't do the electric start because the battery just doesn't, I mean, they just don't last. Batteries in extreme cold just don't get along real well. Back at the fuel arch, Chad is continuing to receive fuel from the spot operators working topside. Go ahead for a fuel arch. Copy, closing key valve. He pulls a lever and closes off the flow to one full tank. Josh, Josh, fuel arch key valve is now closed. Copy. Perfect. Uh, you know, South Pole Station uh, is one big community, uh, which is one thing that I love about it. Uh, you can sit next to uh, an astrophysicist and uh, an equipment operator uh, on the other side of you and uh, it's nice. Everybody uh, gets along really well. And uh, as part of that and keeping with that spirit, um, when there's opportunities to volunteer, uh, we definitely try and help out and do our, our fair share to lend a hand, uh, either in the galley, uh, helping take out trash, loading freshies, that kind of stuff. Another call comes in. There's not going to be much time for volunteering. It's going to be a busy day. The plane that was en route has just landed and will soon be ready to offload more fuel. 
That's all for this edition of the Antarctic Sun podcast, and stay tuned for more. I'll be bringing you more behind-the-scenes looks at how the National Science Foundation gets science done at the bottom of the world. And check out our website at antarcticsun.usap.gov for more news and science from the frozen continent. Thanks for listening.